reading from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistine be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, that the hand of the Philistine may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delighted in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul said, told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time expired, David went, arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. 
And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. As often they came out, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Good morning, everybody. Um, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the, the word of the Lord. Lord, it is an astonishing fact that we can announce to each other the Lord loves us, that you, that you have fixed your love on us. We spoke briefly of it in, in Sunday school this morning, Lord, that you have decided that you would love us, that you would then call us to be your own and then conform us to the image of your son, Lord. That's, that's an amazing mercy, amazing grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. And Lord, in your wisdom, you've left us in this world that's imperfect, broken, still under the stain of sin and destructive in many ways, and yet speaks of your glory and reminds us of your mercy and your wrath all at the same time, tells us of your uh, invisible attributes. And so, Lord, as we walk this world, uh, we are at times stunned by the beauty of it and by the viciousness of it. And Lord, most of the viciousness comes from us. So this morning, Lord, I think of um, the recent uh, killings in our country, the gunmen in Texas shooting eight people, um, a very complicated and convoluted situation on a subway in New York where um, a man was killed, possibly self-defense or defense of others. Or, it, it's so con confusing. It's hard to know what's going on. And so, Lord, in, in these times with this kind of violence on the rise, um, we pray that uh, you would bring, that you would send Holy Spirit the gospel as a revival in our land, Lord, that we would see other people not as threats or, or victims or tokens uh, to express ourselves on, but Lord, as, as people created in the image of God, worthy of respect and, and care and dignity. So Lord, would you bring revival to our land so that we might begin to answer this question of violence, uh, that we might see it begin to subside. Um, Lord, we trust you. We know that this is all in your hands. And so, Lord, we look forward to um, you making it right, however you choose to do that. And, Lord, uh, though we um, many years ago cast off the King of England and decided that we would be free from that, uh, that form of leadership, Lord, we are close kindred friends with England. And so, Lord, I want to pray for King Charles III. Uh, Lord, he is um, stepping into this largely um, symbolic office of the king of england but lord also he is stepping into the role as the head of the church of england and uh father his his spirituality is is mixed at best and a little confused and the church of england is sick and failing and so lord i pray for revival for first of all king charles would you bring him um the the faith of his mother the the uh, evangelical belief of his mother grant him um, salvation in Christ alone. And Lord, would you make that then to spill into the church that he leads? Um, Lord, would you bring revival to the Church of England? Um, when the Puritans came here, Lord, they were seeking to revive the Church of England, to reform it, 
um, and that just never took. Uh, Lord, you can do that. That's not impossible for you. So have mercy on, on our, um, our, our friend nation and uh, bring salvation to her monarch and to her people. And have mercy, Lord. And Holy Spirit, would you be with us now as we turn to your word, as we turn to hear what you have to say to us. We're grateful that you have left this for us, that Holy Spirit, not only have you left your word written, but you come into your people so that we might see and understand. So would you complete that purpose in us this morning? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, the very first time I met Lisa, I don't remember it. We were both in the Air Force. Um, a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours introduced us, and apparently it was on a sidewalk and she was in uniform. And I was in uniform, and, and uniform means uniform. And back in those days, it was just olive drab head to toe. There was no variation. And so I just don't remember. Her hair was up under her hat, and she, I, she might have been wearing a field jacket, so she was just a shape. So it was nice. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, but the second time I, I met her, I, it's, it's burned into my memory. The same mutual friend said, you guys, you have to meet my friend Lisa. She is so funny. And so we were at the NCO club that was, you know, like a music club. And, and so we're sitting there and we were all sitting together talking. And Lisa showed up kind of late because she did school and she worked and everything. And she stepped in the door and the music stopped and the crowd parted in front of me. And this bright spotlight shone on her. And she came walking across the dance floor to say hi with her cute little fingerless gloves and this neat coat with the, you know, big funky collar on it and and her big 1980s hair and that was it i i was done i followed her around from that point to today like a lovesick puppy the first impression i just didn't take i didn't recognize her i didn't see her i didn't know who she was she was just another olive drab person but boy when she came to the nco club that was it my little heart was stolen i, I was done with and so this morning, when we, when we look at what happens in chapter 18, it's kind of like that, though not quite as romantic, and David's not nearly as cute as Lisa. What we got was last week we got David and Goliath. That was that first introduction to David. That was the first time we really see him doing anything. And now what we get in chapter 18 is how people react to David. What is their reaction to David? And the, the chapter is a little bit long, so I'm not going to go really strictly verse by verse through it. But there's a structure to it that I think is going to really help us this morning, and that's four different people and how these four different people react to David. So it starts with Jonathan, then it talks about Saul, and kind of mixed in there is the people, which includes Saul's servants, and then finally Michael. And, and as we go through these different stories, what we'll see is um, how they respond to who David is. What, what does it say about him? So the first one that we meet, the first person we meet is Jonathan. And it's the way the chapter starts is, as soon as he finished talking to Saul, the soul, soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So in other words, David is standing there talking to Saul with Goliath's head in his hand. And he's just finished talking to him. He steps out of the tent and him and Jonathan meet and they're knit together. They are just, that's it. They are best friends from that point on. It's an instant bond. It says that Jonathan's soul was knit to David. They, they, they come together. And so this, this love expresses itself, and they make a covenant with each other. 
And a covenant is, is what I like to call an oath-bound promise. We don't know what the conditions or what the meaning of it was, but they had sworn their allegiance to each other in this covenant. That's how, how tight their friendship was. And then the next thing that happens is Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. Why would he do that? Well, because David has just slain Goliath. And did he come to the battle in armor, ready to fight? No, he came to deliver food to his brother's battalion. So he's probably in his shepherd's gear, whatever shepherd's gear was. But he's just proven himself to be this mighty man of valor in battle. He killed the giant. He cut off the giant's head. He led Israel chasing the Philistines. And so when he comes back, Jonathan looks at him, loves the man, and says, you have a need. You're not fit for what, you're not equipped for what you need to be doing. And so here, take my robe and take my, my shield and take my armor and take my sword and take my bow and there, now you're set. It, it's a, the response of love. When you see somebody you love and they have some need, you need it. It's not loving if you look and go, wow, they really need some food. Too bad. I hope they find something. That, that's not an expression of love. So this is the kind of relationship they have together is, is this, this relationship of love. Now, a minor point, just kind of want to bring this up. It's kind of a side little point. One of the commentators made a great big deal out of it, and I don't think it's there. One of the points is, who is Jonathan? Jonathan is the son of the king. He takes off his robe and puts it on David. He takes off his armor and he puts it on David. He gives David his bow, his, his um, arrows. He, he, he gives himself to David like that. And so some people say this is a, a symbol of the transference of the kingdom to David. And it's kind of reflective of what happened when he met Saul, right? Saul says, you can't fight the giant here. Put on my armor. And David puts it on. He goes, this isn't going to work. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to move in this stuff. And he takes it back off. So this is kind of seen as a reversal of that. I don't think that's necessarily what the text brings out is this transfer of the kingdom. But it kind of is there as an echo, isn't it? Kind of a, a precursor, kind of a tip of what's going on. Because David will not kill Saul and take his place. He won't do that, but he will take Jonathan's place as a successor to the throne. And so when Jonathan puts the stuff, or when David, or Saul puts the stuff on David, he rejects it. But when Jonathan puts it on, he takes it. So that's kind of, I don't think that's the major point, but I think it is kind of something we need to pay attention to because that's going to be echoing through the rest of David's story. Now, one of the tragic things about the relationship between David and Jonathan, these two men who love each other deeply, is that it gets sexualized in our perverse generation. And, and people will say that Jonathan and David were homosexual or bisexual or in some sort of sex. And it's like, man, there is nothing in the text to say that. And it's unfortunate because what we do is we look at two men who are very close, who love and care for each other, and we go, the only way that can be expressed is in sex. And it's just not true. And, and here's the problem that that generates. With that kind of an attitude in society, it puts tremendous pressure on men. Because there are men who are very insecure about that and would be very, very uncomfortable to be thought of in a loving relationship like that if that means homosexuality. And so then men wind up being afraid of those kind of relationships. And, and it's, it's tragic. Men have always had kind of a problem with that. But in May of 2021, right after the pandemic, American Perspectives did a survey and they found out that Americans had much fewer friends after the pandemic. And it wasn't equally divided between men and women. Men suffered the most from this. 
It said that two, uh, 30 years ago, a majority of men, 55%, reported having at least six close friends. That's 30 years ago, six close friends. Today, that number has been cut in half. Slightly more than one in four, 27% men have six or more close friends. 15% of men have no close friends at all, and five, that's a five-fold increase since 1990. This is a problem. This, this picture of David and Jonathan in their relationship, it's really important that men have friendships. And it's okay to have friendships. Now, one of the problems, though, is we tend to want to make all friendships look identical. So the way Lisa has friends and the way I have friends is different. Um, Lisa talks to her, we call them the three amigos. They became best friends in Illinois, and they talk on a regular, regular basis. My best friend from the Air Force was named Mike. And Mike and I were roommates. We met at our first duty station. We got stationed in England together. Um, the only thing that took us apart was Lisa. And we were just best buds. Um, his family, I have never met his family. I only know him. I've never met his family. His family treats me and, and considers me their adopted son because we're so close. We're so much alike. And I went for like 15 years never talking to him. But he's still my best friend. And so we, when we finally got around to getting, you know, unbusy and we could connect again, we've gone and done stuff. Every couple of years, we'll go meet someplace. Like the first time we went to Austin, Texas to go do the music scene. And then the next time we met at the Air Force Museum and I gave him a tour and, and talked my full head off. And um, then a couple of years, about two years ago, we met, uh, we were in a rock band together. I did sound and he was the lead guitarist. We went and met and did a rock band reunion tour. We did a gig together. And now we're talking about maybe meeting in um, uh, Nashville this fall and go see in a concert or something. I don't need to talk to him every moment. During football season, a little bit more. But that's, that's the kind of relationship I have. For Lisa, her friends, it's extremely important that she talks to her, the three amigos on a regular basis. Um, she talks to other folks on a regular basis because women express that friendship in a different way. So it's possible for me, I, I can't remember last time I, oh, you know what, Mike was, his office was right across the street from Covenant School in Nashville, the one that the shooting took place at. And so I checked in with him. I said, dude, are you okay? Um, but you can have these friendships. You can have these relationships without having to make them look identical. Now, there are men who, who will express their friendships in, in much closer ways. But the idea of the friendship is really important. And I think that, that if we look to David and Jonathan, we can look at that and say, that's an example for us. This is important for these guys. And to, it doesn't have to be sexualized, and we don't have to allow the people to sexualize it. It's an important thing for us to do that. Now, how do you do it, guys? Um, first of all, you have to be intentional. You have to say, I'm going to be a friend with this person. Um, you have to take the initiative. If you wait for the other person, both of you guys are going to go 15 years without talking like somebody else I know did. Um, and then just don't expect too much. Let it happen. Just, you know, you'll, you'll grow. C.S. Lewis talked about friendships. And he said, you know, you get a group of guys together in the pub and some, you know, you all just hang out together and you talk. But there'll be one other person where you go, you too? You, you think the same thing and, and you just click. And that's where those big friendships come from. So the first, per, the first reaction to David out of the shoot is Jonathan. He loved him. It was just great. What did they have in common? We'll come to that at the end. So that was Jonathan's response. What comes next in the narrative 
is Saul. Um, Saul says, Saul's response here is, is kind of odd. He's terrified of him. He's just scared to death. But don't forget last chapter, at the end of last chapter in verse 21, it says, and David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. Saul loved him greatly, but now he's trying to kill him. Something's gone on with him. Um, and, and in verse two, it says, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house, put him in his service. So Saul is, is looking to David. He says, you did what I couldn't. You defeated the giant. You're coming into my service. I, I, I take all the best and I put him in my service. But he begins to recognize in him something that's, that's terrifying. He, he's scared to death because of the people singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. Now that sounds like the people are saying, well, David's better than Saul. And that's how Saul interpreted it. But in Hebrew, that's not how that works. In Deuteronomy, there's a couple of places where it says thousands and tens of thousands, and it's not in opposition. They're not putting them against each other and saying one's better than the other. What I think the people are saying when David comes back in with Saul is they're looking and saying, David and Saul, David is the big guy. He's the, he's the hero of the day, but Saul has done this, and they killed a bunch of people. They defeated our enemies. But Saul is so paranoid. He's so into himself. All he can hear is, I, got, I didn't get the bigger number. Why didn't I get the bigger number? He's just so into himself. He's so concerned about who he thinks he is. And so from that point on, verse 9 says, Saul eyed David. And that's really exactly what the Hebrew says. It's, it's the word for eye. In other words, he, he's looking at David sideways going, how can I get rid of him? What am I going to do about this guy? Never trusted him again. Just kept looking at him as if he was a threat. So, the next thing that happens is that evil spirit, that harmful, that troubling spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul, and he's raving in his house. He's just ranting and raving, and David is sitting there playing the liar like he'd been hired to do. He's now in the court, more formally in the court. He's playing the liar, trying to calm Saul, trying to get him to, to, to take it easy. And Saul figures, I'm going to pin him to the wall, throws his spear at him. And it says David escaped him twice. So it happened over and over again. David's used to sitting there playing and going, now, which way is my exit when the spear comes my way? He's, he's that careful about it. Saul is that incensed at David that he's going to kill him. And, and do you remember the mental state when we saw Saul and last time we saw him and, and Samuel? Samuel said, if I go anoint David, Saul's going to hear about it and kill me. Saul does not have a problem killing his friends killing people who, who are on his side, but he, he, has a, he finds them as a threat. So that's what he's going to try to do. But eventually he kind of comes to his senses after the, the, um, the terrors of the evil spirit leave him. And in verse 17, he says, you know what? I'm not going to let my hand be against him, but I'll throw him to the Philistines. Maybe the Philistines will take care of him. So what he did is instead of keeping him in his court, he puts him in charge of a thousand and sends him out to battle all the time. And the assumption is he's going to get killed. You know, this, he's just not going to make it. He's going to, he's going to wind up getting wiped out. But the Lord is with him. And so he succeeds and he succeeds and he succeeds. Saul's plan turns back on his head. Instead of David dying and getting out of the way and being removed, now his, his stature is just growing and growing. So then in verse 21, well, it's right before verse 21, he says that he's going to give him to his daughter or give his daughter to him. 
Because wasn't that the promise? Whoever kills the giant gets my daughter. And that didn't work out. When, when the time came, he had given her to somebody else. Not sure what's going on there. He kind of slips, her, slips in uh, uh, something else. But in verse 21, Saul thought, let me give Michael to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. So in other words, I'm, he didn't want him as a son-in-law. And then he goes, you know what? There's benefit here because I'll have an insider. And, and I can use her as leverage. And so that's what his plan is. And he says, you know, David says, hey, I'm a poor man. It's not that he came from a poor family. He's now an independent person. He's the youngest, so he didn't inherit. He couldn't go to his father and say, give me a, you know, a bunch of money. He says, look, I'm a poor man. What am I going to do? I can't be the son-in-law of the king. A lot of back and forth. They talk him into it. And he says, okay, I'll be the son-in-law of the king. What's the bridal price? I, I can't afford it. David, Saul says, Easy, 104 skins of Philistines. Go out and kill, you know, and they're not going to give those up voluntarily, by the way. It's not something you just go up and politely ask for. So he figures, I'll send him to the Philistines. There's no way he's going to be able to defeat 100 Philistines. Again, the Lord is with him, and what does he do? He takes out 200. Him and his men wipe out 200. It's kind of like Jonathan when he went up against that, that Philistine garrison and just wipes them out. The Lord is with him. And so Saul is just, everything he tries against David gets worse and worse. So in verse 29, the author kind of sums it up. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Everything I've tried against this guy is not working. So Jonathan loved David, just loved him. Saul feared him and tried to kill him, hated him, couldn't stand him. The next group is called the people or Saul's servants also. And how do they view David? Well, in verse five, it says, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. They, they look and they see him doing this. Remember the woman saying, Saul has slayed his thousands and David is tens thousands. So they're looking at David and go, this works. This guy is doing it. David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly exalted is how the chapter ends. The people look at him and go, this is why we wanted a king. This is what we wanted the king to do, to go out before us, to slay our enemies. This is great. They look at him as functional, as utilitarian. He'll work. Now, the reason I say that is because when we get to 2 Samuel, when Absalom, David's son, rises up against him, in uh, 2 Samuel 15, it says, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of all the men of Israel have gone out to Absalom. We found somebody better. We'll take him instead. Thank you, David. So the people, they, they love him, but they love him in a utilitarian way. He'll, he'll do something for us. He'll work. And so we'll take him. And so that's their approach to David. And, and you won't see that so much, I don't think, in, in the rest of the narrative, but it just kind of knowing where this story goes with them, I kind of think that's what's happening. And then finally, what Saul says is he says, the, the bridal price for Michael, my youngest, my, my next oldest daughter, 104 skins of uh, Philistines. And what winds up terrifying Saul is Saul's daughter loved him. Michael looked at, at David and loved him. And she, he's like, oh, well, that'll be the hook. And then he didn't die. And so this was a trouble. But the, the, the issue is that Saul's daughter was not supposed to love him. 
She was supposed to be a hook to him, but that, that's not what happens here. And in the next chapter, when Saul comes to arrest him, Michael is going to defend David. She's going to put the household idol in the bed and put a sheep's skin on the top of the head and lie to the people who came to arrest him and sneak him out. She's going to take care of him. But how does that end with Michael? In 2 Samuel 6, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he's dancing before it, it literally says she despised him. She had married somebody else. David said, bring my wife. And her husband comes weeping with her. So when she comes back to David, she despised him. So she loved him initially, but it faded and it was gone. It turned into nothing. So what is it that makes these four people respond in different ways to David? What's, what's the kind of deciding factor that would make each person respond differently to him? I think the answer comes in verse 14. The author reminds us, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. What is that deciding factor? The Lord is with him. Saul hated him because the Lord had departed from Saul and had come to David, and that caused him to hate him. That's the clue that kind of opens this up, is these people are responding to David, yes, but to something even greater, and that's responding to the Lord in David and what's happening there. This is kind of like the parable of the soils. Remember the parable that Jesus told? It's often called the parable of the sower. It's not about the sower. It's about the soils. And, and the word is sown on, on the path. And the birds come and they eat it up. And the word is sown amongst rocky soil. And it sprouts up, but then it fades. And the, and the word is sown amongst ground that has a bunch of thorns and thistles. And it chokes it out. But the good soil grows like mad produces a huge, huge um, uh, crop. I think that's a picture of these four people. Jonathan is the good soil. The, the, the Lord being with David and Jonathan, he hears and he understands and he bears fruit and it yields in one case 100, another 60, another 30-fold. This is the good soil. This, this God present in David is welcomed by Jonathan. The reason I say that is because what did Jonathan say when he took out the, the Philistine garrison? All of Israel is trembling and hiding, and Jonathan steps forward and goes, God can save by many or little. Why are we standing here? Let's go attack him. He's a man of God. He's looking to God. That's the thing that connected, I think, him to David, is he saw God in David. He saw David's heart was towards God, and, and Jonathan's heart was that way, and he they, came together like magnets. Click. They met. Jonathan is the good soil. I think Saul is the path because it did say he loved, John he loved David at first, but then the evil came and snatched it away. The one who's sown on the path hears the word of the kingdom, but does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. It's the word of the kingdom. And isn't that Saul's big issue? I'm the king. David's not. Kingdom stays with me. The evil one, an evil troubling spirit from the Lord came and troubled him. This, this describes Saul. Saul's fear is based in his own idea of himself. He's too focused on himself to look at David and say, I see, I see God working in David. He can't see that. He has never acted like that. He's always said, it's about me. It's about me. It's about me. We'll go avenge my name. Yeah, we better offer a sacrifice so that the people are happy. 
It's always been about Saul. He's, he's the path. I think Michael is kind of seen in, in the rocky soil. There's no root. When the, when the seed falls in the rocky soil, it grows up. She loved him. She defended him. But there's no root to it. It hasn't grown deep into the ground. And so um, what uh, Jesus explains it, he says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. Eventually, Michael's love for David just faded. It might have been superficial. It might have been, I like David, and not really so interested in the Lord that she could see in him. I think that might be what's going on. And then that leaves the people in the thorns. I think that kind of works too. The people accepted David at first. Yeah, he's great. He's working. But then when when struggles come up, when, when life gets more complicated, when there are more troubling things going on, yeah, well, you know, chokes it out. Not so interested anymore. What's, where's the next great thing? And, and, they, and they press on and they find somebody else. And this is where it ties to Jesus. Is this is the word of the kingdom that Jesus is speaking of. And we see it reflected in the story of David. How do you respond to Christ in somebody? What is your response to them? It could be all, immediate revulsion. Don't like that person any way, shape, or form. None whatsoever. It might be, hey, they're pretty cool. Ah, they're getting boring. Or it might be a deep and abiding love. And don't think that that means you have to take off your armor and give it to that other person. The way that it gets expressed is going to be culturally appropriate in different ways. But are we looking for Christ and other people? Are, are we looking to folks and saying, this is a person redeemed by Jesus Christ. They are worthy of dignity and honor in my care. Or are we going to let the worries of the world choke it out? So the, the ultimate expression of this is Jesus. Jesus is the word of the kingdom. He is David's greater son. And when he came, he got a similar response. The crowds loved him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests hated him. There was no middle ground. There wasn't anybody who went, oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah, whatever. I can take him or leave him. The same thing with David. It doesn't appear that anybody went, oh, David's okay. They either loved him or they hated him. They either feared him or they respected him. So Jesus comes and, and he is the personification, the ultimate person of David in this. And so what, is it, what does it look like when Jesus does this? In, at the end of Mark, in Jesus' final days, uh, it says, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. In other words, release a prisoner during Passover. And he, that's Pilate, answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priest delivered him up. They did the same thing that, that Saul did. They looked at David and went, he's a threat. And it was out of envy. They went, I, he's going to take our position if we're not careful. And so harmonizing the Gospels here, John 19, um, still at the trial, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Ultimate betrayal, the ultimate turning away. They have rejected the good king. Unlike the people who accepted, Jesus, or, uh, accepted David for a while and then turned on him. So when we look at these things, what we have to ask ourselves is, is, what is your response to Jesus? If your response to Jesus is, meh, okay, you haven't met Jesus. 
You haven't listened to him. You haven't met the real Jesus. You've met some cultural picture of him. Because nobody responds and goes, me. It's always, I either love him or I can't stand him. He's either the savior of the world or the biggest megalomaniac I have ever seen in my life. He's either ultimately beautiful or absolutely offensive. How could you say those things? David is setting us up for that. He's preparing us for that. God is with him. God is working in him. He's not the perfect person. Jesus got that title. But God is working in him. And and you can begin to see already people are dividing into these camps and how they're going to respond. They're becoming different types of soil. So the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, is, where am I in that? How do I feel about this? Am I anticipating and looking forward to Jesus? Am I anticipating his return? Eh, I don't care. No big deal. Or do you actually really not like him very much? (laughs) He doesn't agree with me. God would never disagree with me. How can I worship a God who doesn't believe everything I already believe? Well, guess what you're not worshiping? And guess what you are? You're worshiping yourself. So Jesus is going to strike that same thing. David is going to strike this this chord throughout Israel. It's going to separate people out, spread them out. And Jesus does the same thing. But here's the good news, friends. Jesus said that you're his friends. He's called you to be his friends. Like David and Jonathan were friends, Jesus has said, you're my friends. And greater love has no, greater love has no one than that he would lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus has, has gone beyond the covenant with David and Jonathan. He's made a new covenant in his blood. And that's for us because we're his friends. And because he's made this covenant in his blood, he invites us into his life. He invites us into his intimate space. And so this morning, he invites us to a table with him. Would you sit down and eat with me? You invite a friend over to eat dinner, not an enemy. And so Jesus is, is looking at his enemies and saying, come over and eat with me. Have a meal with me. Come into my intimate space and be my friend. And, and that's the call this morning. Um, so as let me pray before we, we come to the Lord's Supper, and then we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, you came not to bring peace, but to set people at odds. Mother against daughter, father against son. Um, Lord, it's, it's um, frightening and, and, and dismaying at times to think about that. But Lord, what you're doing is you're separating out the chaff and the wheat. You, you're separating the sheep and the goats. Lord, you're preparing your people to come to you because you have saved them, you have loved them, and you've called them your friends, and you've made a covenant with them. Lord, would you stir in our hearts real, strong, legitimate feelings about you. Shake us from our apathy. Shake us from indifference. Shake us from assumption that we just know you. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here as they're reading their scriptures this week. Lord, would you shock each and every one of us with the beauty of Jesus Christ in the pages as we read, myself included. I need to have my eyes open. I need to have the dust cleaned out of my attic. Lord, would you come and show us why we should love you and not fear or envy you, why we should sink our roots deep into you and not just take you while it's comfortable. 
And Lord, why it's a fearful thing to reject you. Have mercy on us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.